Philip, great to have you on the Tech Inspirations podcast again. How are you today? Oh, great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having uh, an interview with you. Uh, this is your second one, right? You've done one about yeah. maybe two years ago. That's right. And it's an opportunity to do a bit of reflection on what I've done in the last couple of years. Yeah. And uh, uh, those were not just ordinary couple of years, especially the last one, right? Um, over the last year, we had the pandemic still raging across the world. Um, vaccinations, thankfully, are being rolled out. How was that year for you? Well, it didn't stop me. I, I, I probably did about 100 projects last year. <laughs> And I, I did some projects that related to the pandemic, which include thermal cameras, social hmm. distancing, and um, I was sort of interested what would happen if we became isolated and we had to rely on our own technology. Like, could we make our own masks with 3D printers? <laughs> yeah. And things like that. But it, a lot of that didn't happen because the supply lines uh, became open and um, I've got a lot of technology which is ready to go, but hasn't really been used. Uh, like I'm glad you said that. I was doing a bit of reading yesterday, um, and uh, one article in particular that I read mentioned that the fact that technology and science actually prevailed uh, over the last year in the pandemic, it really, like technology really held on, science delivered what it needed to deliver. It's the politics that failed. So how about that? Like our technology infrastructure held, um, we didn't lose electricity, we didn't go hungry. We have a vaccine in record time. It's just that something else broke in the way that politics and decisions are taking place. I'm, I'm particularly happy about the technology side, obviously being tech technologies. What do you think as an inventor? I was really surprised that I could use technology to have a social interaction with seniors. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And yet with the younger people on a group called Osbury, everything failed. <laughs> but with the seniors, I, 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 went, I was invited to a presentation in October and there was about um, 50 seniors all engaged with Zoom. They were all familiar with it. And I thought that was fantastic. You know, uh, they kept on going and they were learning new things. Osbury is a meetup, right? In, in in Sydney, it's a very popular meetup in Sydney. Normally, they do face to face meetups. That's but right. What you're saying is that they had to switch to an online format, and that's where the whole thing fell apart, right? Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> Osbury is very unstructured, so it's um, you know, you just go there, meet someone, and have a face to face discussion. Mm. Whereas um, U3A, which stands for the University of the Third Age. Uh, they have very structured meetings. Ah, uh, maybe that's a key, right? And yeah, it wasn't the technologies. The fact that they they weren't going to let this um, uh, pull them down. They were going to go ahead and also learn how to do it, and they did yeah. it very, very well. That's a great point. I think uh, the difference, like uh, in in Osbury, people there that attend are really strong in in any technology you can imagine these days. It's a very mixed up, a mixed group with a lot of different skills. But I guess there's the structure was missing, which is um, something that you do need when you are online and using all sorts of different technological tools. That you're not there face to face to interact freely as you would in a normal meetup. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Great. Um, Philip, uh, so I know that you've got uh, a presentation prepared for us. Before we jump into it, could you give us a summary? What is it that you'll be talking about today? 
Well, I'll be uh, emphasizing more on my current experiences. And um, one of them is with, um, again, with uh, senior people that are retired. And it's to uh, give them a hobby, but it's also to involve them with letting them know more about what their grandkids are doing in STEM education. So okay. uh, it's, it's having that conversation, but n- not just by uh, someone talking about STEM. It's for them themselves to actually make and do a STEM project. Mm-hmm. And that's a real big challenge because uh, a lot of seniors have never done any programming in their lives. So I'm, I'm starting mm-hmm. online, teaching them programming, which leads on to a STEM project. Uh, so, Philip, I, I say two things here. You want to join generations using technology, so grandkids with the grandparents, that's one. But you yeah. also want to get, um, like, the older generations, I guess, um, the more mature generations into STEM education. And I, I want to ask you here, why do you think that's important? Like, if I'm uh, a 70, 60, 70-year-old retiree, shouldn't wouldn't i rather that's the right word maybe go play golf or fish um or watch tv (laughs) Uh, why why should i be concerned about stem because they hear about it from their uh, children and their grandkids and they hear about well what is the stem how is stem Hmm. different from the way i learned at school and so there's a couple of fundamentals which are quite critical. You know, one is that you learn by doing. And a a lot of what we did at school was uh, learning by rote Hmm. or it was learning from a textbook. So there is a difference. And uh, the idea is that um, grandparents can have an interesting conversation uh, about what they did in STEM and um, whether the, the project is meaningful and how it relates to society. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a social interaction. Interesting. So, okay, to rephrase what you said, because I usually understand concepts by trying to reframe them in my mind. So what you're saying is that you have two objectives. One is to connect grandparents to grandkids, older people to younger people through STEM and through technology. And the second one is to perhaps reconnect older people to the world by introducing them to modern technologies and also teaching them the skills they need to make things. Uh, like what I'm thinking here is that, you know, it's quite common to see a retiree sitting on a rock chair solving a puzzle or uh, a crossword, right, to keep the mind working. So that puts a little bit of strain on and memory. But what if instead of just solving crosswords you actually built an Arduino gadget where you had to understand the concepts of electricity and programming and put them together and that I guess would strain your your mind a lot more and exercise it and therefore keep it active so that's how I see it is that what you're trying to achieve yeah definitely but what has happened in the last 12 months is that technology has become better so that it can be packaged in a way that you can use the extra memory, the better programming techniques, so that other people, not just programmers, but other people could actually understand the concepts. Correct. So I, I use an, an analogy like playing with Lego and putting the Lego bits together. And my programming style, uh, it's like a blocky language. And what, one example is Scratch. 
it's like putting the blocks together, just like you play with Lego. And so far, that seems to be working. And it's only because if I was doing this, say, five years ago, and it was on a a little computer called the Arduino Uno uh, with a tiny bit of memory, you had to be very clever uh, before you um, came to the memory limitations. And you could only really program that in C++. So uh, today, you're not constrained. You've got um, thousands of times more resources that and those resources make it easier for uh, lots of um, people to engage yeah. in this activity. Okay, Philip, uh, let's get in it. Um, I'm eager to see your presentation. Okay, I'm going to share my uh, screen. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'll just quickly go through my bio, um, and this is the career base which has always been a a conflict between trying to be a a manager, getting lots of income for the family, and making something which is interesting. And because I was a public servant, public servants were told 20 years ago, stop doing and stop making. Everything from now on is going to be outsourced. And that was a real conflict for me, which has um, got worse and worse as my career went on. But fortunately, I was able to climb up the uh, management ladder and um, keep the family supported that way. Okay, so I started off um, with uh, clinical medicine, uh, putting technology into hospitals. An example was the new Westmead Hospital. I got 10% of the budget and go and equip it with all the technology it needed. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, because I studied computers and I just happened to be one of the first ones to study mini computers, previous generation all studied mainframes and they were behind big uh, glass windows. You couldn't touch them. I could turn on and off the computer and get it to do things, which is really good. But um, being a public servant meant that this wasn't going to last forever because uh, the clinicians were going to get far better at um, knowing how to use these than I was. So I went off to another government department and they were experts in using computers for traffic control. And they had already developed the uh, SCAT system for Sydney, which is a traffic light control system sold in almost every country in Asia, including Hong Kong, the Philippines, and I got to work Uh, with experts. And one of the first things I did was to build a robot for testing uh, roads. And um, I did the automatic controls to make sure that it didn't crash, but it also simulated the behavior of how a truck wore down a freeway. And this machine was to get the parameters, the physical model of what made roads, what destroyed them. And it turned out it was the weight of the truck. And um, I worked on another uh, geographical information system to collect all the assets about roads and built a um, system called Roadlock using the world's first portable computer, the Epson HX20. You've got a a Motorola 6801 on a breadboard there. Yeah, so a lot of this was all dependent. The uh, Epson HX20 laptop computer was a Japanese derivative of the Motorola 6801. 
And the, the 6801 was one of the first computer on a complete computer on a chip back in 1981. So I got to know that quite well. And, and I even designed and built my own computers. So um, the Department of Main Roads, they built about 100 of these and used them in uh, soil testing uh, laboratories all the way through New South Wales. So, um, hmm. and it's a matter of getting really intimate knowledge about um, some technology so you can exploit it. And then I went out and found out that the HX20 used the same computer and all I had to do was extend it. Okay, so I did a lot of projects later. Uh, I was a project manager rather than a designer or a builder, but the Transport Management Centre in Sydney, I put together the video system for that with about 2,000 cameras. So you might have seen cameras on the road all over the place. I had to integrate those and put them up on a very large wall called a video wall. So public transport projects and the Sydney Harbour Bridge, they were all sort of projects I worked on. And finally, I collaborated with a, a group in Australia called NICTA, which is now part of the CSIRO. And uh, we came up and looked at things like, would a ship fit through or would it collide with the Sydney Harbour Bridge? And so I looked at things like LIDAR, LIDAR technologies, radars. And also there was a concern that the Sydney Harbour Bridge was actually corroding. And we built together a health bridge monitoring system. And finally, we also looked at a way that if uh, a truck couldn't fit into the Sydney Harbour Bridge tunnel, that we could automatically detect that it was too big before it went into the tunnel and we could put the brakes on it and divert it. And we actually came up with an interesting project uh, that related to the feasibility of infrastructure working with cars on the road, cars and trucks. So that, yeah. that was quite interesting. It wasn't just about the self-driving car. It was also about the relationship between vehicles on the road and the infrastructure. Yeah. You worked on a lot of innovative but also very practical problems. And these are the kinds of problems that governments, of course, would be concerned with in one of, one of a kind, like would a ship collide to the Sydney Harbour Bridge? That's, that's not something that you start a company for, but if you're a government, you need to find a technical solution there. And it's similar problems to that that, you been, that you've been solving throughout your life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, problems that had some meaning and benefit to society. Uh, for example, the, the state coroner was very concerned about um, drivers dying uh, in a place near Bathurst uh, where there was black ice on the road oh. and we had to detect the presence of black ice, then warn drivers to slow down well in advance. And so projects like that that um, were able to improve the safety of drivers on the road, they were quite important to me to do that. And uh, I guess one of my biggest projects was the flashing lights at school zones, where we had to um, deliver flashing lights to 4,000 schools to try and change the behaviour of drivers to slow down. So that, that's a, an example of a project that um, we worked on. Okay, so I, I might look at now what I consider in retirement one of the big problems that we have, and that's the digital divide in STEM education. And uh, partly that is 
a result of um, me being able to understand from my own family and my sons uh, what um, their needs are in education. And um, my elder son, Jason, uh, has autism. And uh, I found that um, interacting with Jason, not only just on simple projects, but using technology where he can play with it and also do a bit of construction, actually helped him with his education. So, so I looked at um, how uh, older people uh, could also benefit from STEM education. And um, uh, part of that is uh, I um, wanted to share what I did and I wanted to keep alive the, uh, the learning. So I never went into a U3A, the University of the Third Age, as an expert. I was always learning about a week before I did a presentation and I used to concentrate on the learning process and what I got out of it and then shared that with um, members of U3A. Uh, now, more recently, I've um, done workshops in the eastern part of Sydney in one library called Green Square Library. And I noticed they had fantastic resources on the east coast, uh, particularly the City of Sydney Council, where they provided STEM kits uh, for kids. Then I went to uh, the Western, I did a survey and looked at Blacktown, Parramatta, and they didn't have anything. And I was quite interested. Well, uh, let's see what we can do about um, evening that balance up so that uh, the kids of yeah. Western Sydney had the same opportunities to play with STEM resources in their local library. So uh, there are two things. Yeah. Now, more recently, I've um, been invited by the CSIRO uh, to be a professional in their STEM school partnership. Now, the big problem here is that um, a lot of rural schools in New South Wales don't have a STEM teacher mm. and the kids don't have the resources. So the idea is that um, professionals can go online, even though they might be in Sydney, they can go anywhere in New South Wales and interact with a uh, teacher who is a nominated STEM person, might not know much about STEM, and you can assist and help them. So I've uh, recently been paired with a school in the Bega Valley uh, to um, to see what we can do about um, uh, cooperating, how we can work together. Uh, Philip, just a quick uh, set of questions, two questions here. Uh, could you tell us what is the University of the Third Age and the CSIRO? Just for those of us listening uh, that are not familiar. Yeah, the University of the Third Age started in Paris about 30 years ago and is now a worldwide organisation. And it's called the University of the Third Age because when you retire and um, you've got um, other opportunities, keep your brain active, keep on learning. And the idea is that uh, you can be a volunteer and offer courses or alternatively you can go along and learn how to play chess learn do something and uh, keep your mind active but the important thing is that it allows social engagement uh, amongst people who are retired so it so, is an in international institution right it's, yeah, it's every country thing. in the world every yeah. country in the world has got yeah. it in, including china china's got um u3a clubs 
It is like a, is it like a, should I, the word university prompts me to think that it's a place where you can get a degree and you have to sit exams and you do assignments and it's got this traditional university organization. Am I thinking right or is it totally wrong? It's like more like a club where you go and socialize and learn things. It's all about learning hmm. informally and um, participating, but um, not just um, listening, but also asking questions and uh, having conversations about the topic that um, you're talking about. Right, okay. And CSIRO? uh, CSIRO is a a government organisation, an Australian government organisation, which is dedicated to science. So it's got an old name. C means Commonwealth. S means um, scientific. I means industrial. And uh, those concepts are the are most important. That is, apply science yeah. to solving Australia's uh, yeah. problems, particularly in, in agriculture. And it was a CSIRO scientist, or two of them, that invented Wi-Fi. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, they've done actually quite a lot in radio astronomy and other areas of science and shared that worldwide. So they are the top organisation in Australia now and they um, collaborate with most of the universities in science and engineering in Australia. Yeah, they, they, it's a huge organisation and like they research everything. There's agriculture and food, as you said, they publish books with findings, what kind of food is good for you, what isn't. Here's some recipes uh, that are scientifically tested to you know, reduce your bad cholesterol and increase the good one and lose weight. There's uh, energy, research in land, water, manufacturing, so on. So it's, it's very spread out. It's, it's a big organisation. It's very, very large. Uh, their involvement in STEM yeah. was to uh, engage in one of the visions that we had in Australia, and that was to sh- uh, make a partnership with industry. So that the STEM projects that kids do in school uh, had some relevance to society and they could work on projects or know about projects where their skills that they learn in STEM could be used in industry and they might even lead to a career in that area. Yeah. So that's the role okay. of the CSIRO in that area. Great. Okay, so I, I guess um, some of the solutions to the things that I recognised there was I would go and make things. I would do things that I didn't do while I was having a full-time career. And uh, that meant quite a big difference, using my hands, uh, learning new skills. And it was totally different because I was doing some of this stuff 30 years ago. And today it's a bit different and I had to learn new things. Uh, I put on courses for kids And I did that by collaboration with um, startup companies that during the school holidays would put workshops on on STEM education. And I did my first one 12 months ago uh, in the Green Square Library where we looked at the uh, artificial intelligence and robotics. So, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I uh, preparing for that workshop meant that I had to go to a company called Nevadia, and get a certificate from them on how to program the Jetson Nano. <laughs> and um, I learned all about artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. And then the I Jetson to... Nano is a board. Uh, I think it's uh, it contains um, 
microprocessors from NVIDIA. Uh, and the, the, the company that makes graphics processors, and it's really good for artificial intelligence, right? So that's what you learned. Yeah, but uh, they also produced a little board which was compatible with the Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. And I used their robot, and their robot would uh, use the artificial intelligent algorithms that they um, had devised to recognise road signs and other things on a, uh, on a robot mat, uh, which would allow them to navigate and find things. So I, I built a yeah. robot to put out bushfires, and it would recognise things like bushfire, water, and you could give it instructions, and it would also learn about these um, these things on the board. Wow. So, yeah. then, learning. so I was learning about uh, two weeks ahead of having to present all this to the kids. <laughs> Just in time delivery. <laughs> uh, exactly. And so uh, that was interesting. But the other thing is uh, ha having conversations and activities with seniors, as, as a learner myself, meant that I could um, understand what they ha would have to go through because it's not easy uh, using a computer uh, when you're doing it uh, perhaps for the first time when you're in your 70s. So uh, that that's a real challenge. But then could I do it over Zoom? <laughs> so that made it even, even a bigger challenge. Now, the other thing I've been working on is to actually lobby politicians about what the government is doing both in the state and nationally about um, helping with STEM education. So I've written to politicians, I've had a conversation with them, and I'm interested to see how the government could um, provide resources so that um, every, every kid in Australia could um, learn STEM, they could have their own robot, and they could um, learn about how STEM could be useful in their lives. Uh, again, the other thing was to network with uh, maker groups like Osbury and uh, Sydney Robotics and STEM Education. So um, I, I think I first met you, Peter, at one of their presentations. Yeah, I think it was Osbury. Yeah, maybe uh, the robotics one, yeah. It, that was the robotics. Yeah, but yeah. I also met you at Osbury too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that was quite interesting. So uh, perhaps I, I might go through some of the um, things. This is my son working with um, Little Bit Electronics, and he could snap together some of the things and make really simple circuits. So um, yeah. I was interested in not the complicated things, but the things that meant um, that could be useful to people with special needs. So uh, this is um, my son's desktop, and you can see on there there's a lot of things that he's working on, principally Lego. And uh, things like cardboard and working and making something here for Valentine's Day. He's making a, uh, a little heart for his mum. Yeah. And um, make do with cardboard again. He's making, yeah. and he's the one that's doing it. And when you actually see him, he made a, uh, a carousel. Now, uh, he made it himself, and I added the carousel music using a little computer called the Microbit. Yeah. And the micro bit here is, uh, it's actually recreating carousel music of uh, the last century. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of fun. These are examples of projects that we work on together. Now, the other one that I've been working with him is a thing called Squishy Circuits. And 
uh, understanding that Play-Doh is conductive. So what we're doing here is is actually making things like a Christmas tree uh, that had lights and combining the art of of playing with Play-Doh with um, electricity and electronics. But the other thing, Jason, he has no verbal language, but he's really good at um, understanding and following complicated um, diagrams in Lego. So uh, I get him to work with this. And the one that he finished just recently for the Chinese New Year was a whole banquet made out of Lego. So uh, I thought that was quite good. He, he did the whole thing himself. And you can see him going through. They're the, they're the maker groups that I've been working on. And um, about a year ago, I put on a, um, a workshop. Uh, about 15 kids attended. After that, no more physical workshops uh, were, were happening. But it was really good to work with the kids. And uh, I was using a, a robot called MBOT, was one of about three robots. It was quite simple. But um, to add the machine vision, I used a, a little camera there called the Pixie camera, and it, it gave some yeah. of the um, machine vision. But um, I also worked with the, – there's Alex from – he was my partner on that workshop. Now, Alex did um, – he was an expert in artificial intelligence and was a graduate of ANU and had a startup company but he had never soldered anything in his life. <laughs> for the Jets and Nano, we had to do a bit of soldering. And there's Alex. He's finished with the soldering iron, and I taught him how to solder. And so I thought that was good that I could help. Um, I could help people that had a narrower uh, outlook in their career, and um, they wanted to be, uh, start have their own startup business, and they needed some extra skills. So uh, th- there's the the jet bot they call it the jet uh, using the um, jet jets and nano, and um, I had a conversation with a Chinese company you might have heard about that Peter called uh, Seed Studio, yeah, and uh, they have a, um, a a sister company called Tinkergen, and I told them about my interest in STEM education using robots. So they gave me a free robot uh, to evaluate and I was able to um, get this robot to uh, learn road signs uh, using codes like this Hmm. and then go back and tell them how they could improve their robot. So I did that about nine months ago and they've been, you can buy that now from China from uh, Seed Studio. Wow. (laughs) So it's called the Mark uh, Robot. The great thing about um, this was I was able to communicate with the inventor and also um, you know, have a dialogue with the company. Uh, and I thought having that feedback and having um, interaction was quite important. Yeah. So makers could actually contribute uh, to projects like this. So uh, th- th- there's the robot on, on the uh, line. And I'm currently working on a new robot. Uh, also now sold by Seed Studio, and it's a pet dog. <laughs> uh, what's fascinating about it, if you actually look at it, it's like the Sony. I don't know if you've ever seen the Sony uh, pet dog robot. 
it's actually oh, yeah. uh, embraced by lots of seniors in Japan because they don't. Uh, it's too hard to keep real pet dogs while you're getting older. Yeah, and messy. The, these sort of robots, um, they can actually behave just like a real dog. And I'm, I've, um, I'm currently working on this as a project. And there's Jason. Wow. So um, uh, people like Jason were quite fascinated because he, he's interacting he with the robot. He's interacting with it. And I'm going to add things like touch. So when he touches the robot, I have to add a higher level um, logic to it so that yeah. it'll have a brain. It's got really good muscular control. It's got nine servos to control it yeah. at the moment. So I'm going I'm to add looking touch. At I'm looking at this page. It's it's called the Petoy Beetle Bionic Open Source Robot Dog, and uh, uh, it's unique bionic system. <laughs> uh, it it contains a customized Arduino board, which is the brain and moves all the motors and uh, interacts with the with the sensors. Up to twelve servo motors, so it can move different parts. Yeah. Looks pretty good. Yeah. So um, the brain that it's got is not good enough for uh, uh, for uh, more advanced things. I want to add more sensors. So when it recognises you, it will bark. You can it can interact with uh, Raspberry Pi or ESP32 for things like video and you know more intelligence. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm got I'm going to add machine vision to it mm. so that it can recognise things. And I've already started, this is uh, my mind map on the projects that I'm currently working on. So I've actually done quite a bit, but I'm holding them off until I get another computer called an ESP32, which will be a better brain than it has at yeah. the moment. <laughs> yes. Okay, so one of the other things I'm doing is um, I'm collaborating with Blacktown Library. And I've so far been successful for them to spend a bit of money on STEM resources for kids. And so they're going to set this up at both Blacktown and Mount Druitt libraries. And I'll put on workshops there for them, uh, possibly during the school holidays. Uh, so um, that hasn't started yet because of COVID-19. It won't work by Zoom. I will have to um, do it as a face-to-face -face meeting. Yeah. And there's some of the projects that I'm looking at. The computer that I'm going to work with is the Microbit is one of them. Mm -hmm. And the other one is um, it's called the M5 Stick C from M5 Stack. Right here. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, I'll be using that. And I, Blacktown now have bought all the additional resources so that kids can learn electronics with that. Okay, so um, that's what they've done. And uh, for U3A, I'm looking at projects and sharing the knowledge with U3A about lots of projects. Now, this one here uses a communication system called ultra-wide bandwidth. And I'm, I'm going to design an indoor navigation system like GPS. So with three base stations and a tag, it will be possible to find out where you are. And what's really interesting about this with simple mathematics of triangulation, kids can actually do the mathematics themselves. They can solve the, uh, the, the equations 
and they can actually do uh, a lot of this, whereas with GPS, it was so complicated that not many people engaged with that. But here, you can actually build quite a complex system uh, as long as you go through this, go through step by step and understand um, how it all works. So uh, the other thing I'm working on is um, a vertical garden, and I'm measuring the moisture in the soil using capacitive sensors, and I've got pumps that automatically uh, bring in the water. So it's a water management system, and I'm doing the same with light. So there's my vertical garden. It uses little computers, ESP32 computers, and Grove Electronics with light sensors. And what's really interesting, I'm discovering how photosynthesis works and what um, part of the spectrum is really important for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a very, very interesting project. So there's the light sensor. And I've also put in that some of those little computers into um, environmental chambers and measuring things like the actual temperature outside. Uh, with COVID-19, this is my first um, thermal camera. And uh, it's a very low cost one, but it's able to detect uh, if I have a high temperature on my forehead. So uh, I thought that was uh, quite interesting. Doing so that. what kind of sensor are you using for that? Is it just visual or infrared? It's a, it's a um, uh, infrared sensor and it measures the uh, infrared radiation emitted mm. by a body. Yeah. So um, if I have a high temperature, it uses, it's able to take a, a map. So it it would have about 120 by about 60 array of um, LED uh, sensors, which are sensitive in that um, infrared yeah. radiation um, yeah. area. But I, I think the important thing right. is uh, you can actually do some of this stuff yourself and then integrate it into um, perhaps a, a security system so that someone's got a high temperature, they can't get into your house, or you could use it, um, you know, for monitoring. But you can go further than just a commercial system, which has its own own uh, proprietary technology built on top of it. So everything I'm doing is all open source. Yeah. Uh, the, the most current one I'm working on for U3A is computer music. And uh, these are some of the projects uh, I've been working on. The first one was a watch that they could actually wear themselves. And the watch has a, um, a built-in timer. And this is the second project that a senior has never programmed before is actually working on at the moment. But then I have challenges uh, for the ones that want to go a bit further. And this one here adds a GPS module so that you can extract the time from a GPS sensor. And it can then... Um, it can then synchronize your watch. Yeah. And I do the same with um, the network timing protocol. So you can do some synchronization. So the projects I work on are really, really simple, but they do have challenges that challenge me. And I then share the experiences on whether that was successful <laughs> or not. <laughs> so um, with the music one, I'm starting off with a, um, a doorbell where all you have to do is just press the button and when you do that, it gives you music. And But I'm then extending it 
so that seniors might be interested in having things in their house that can turn on automatically. Like if they have a, uh, a push button and they're in a chair, they press the button, the lights could go on. Yeah. So I'm looking at how you could uh, integrate some of this with things like um, Philips Hue lighting for your house and using some home automation software uh, that would allow seniors uh, to be more independent and even allow a carer to attend to them if they need help. Yeah. Now, with it, this is um, one that I'm preparing for my next U3A session. And what it is, um, it's comparing the colours with uh, music. And this is now an international standard for kids learning music. So you can buy musical instruments like the one on the bottom, which is a xylophone or a glockenspiel, to be more correct. Yeah. And the red means that's middle C. Then as you move down, the colour coding represents the, it's a coding of the musical scale. And that helps people learn music. So uh, I've been exploiting okay. that quite a lot uh, in, in uh, special education where yeah. kids can have a lot of fun playing uh, with um, tubes that are all colour-coded. They can bang each other on the head uh, and they can make music. <laughs> but this particular application is actually turning Lego into a theremin. So the theremin's over 100 years old now and it's the, the world's first musical instrument. <laughs> and uh, what you do here is move your hand back and forward so if you go to one of the Lego bricks, oh, I see. It will. Uh, it uses a sensor which is connected to a um, M5 stack C, and you can see the piano scale on it. When you move your hand back and forward, the little red dot follows the notes yeah. on the piano. Yeah, and you can actually make music. So I thought that's quite wow. interesting because <laughs> it's actually combining uh, quite a few concepts there: color coding. Um, music and also um, programming. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Yep. But I've... Sound um, color programming, yep. Now, that little computer, which only costs $9, uh, has, an ex has a three-axis accelerometer on board. And what I've done is instead of using the hand um, position, I'm using accelerometers to move your hand back and forward to play a musical instrument. And that's what's happening here. If I move my hand up and down like that, yeah. it will select the note. And if I do that, it will play the note. Okay. And so uh, th that's um, a um, glockenspiel simulated on the, on the colour screen of the M5 Stick C. I use, I'm quite happy with this computer because for seniors, they can make things for the kitchen, like a kitchen scale that I've got here. Uh, and they don't have to have the mechanical skills because it's very well packaged and yeah. it can be easily put together as a wearable on a watch and it can be used immediately on a project. So um, I, I've been quite careful uh, to select a computer like this which can be used very quickly on a project. Yeah. Uh, with the CSIRO program, I have been allocated to a school on the Bigger Valley Pambula, and we've only had our first Zoom meeting 
and I'm yet to actually uh, find out what the, they like to do. But <laughs> one of the things they're interested in doing is learning more about the environment and um, learning about the uh, how carbon dioxide can be measured in a room and can warn people that they should open the windows. So uh, th I think that'll be one of the first projects we'll actually work on together. Okay, so Peter, that's the end of the mm. presentation. It was amazing. Wow, you and all that is your the work that you've done this year. Yeah, m most of that is stuff I've done this year, except yeah. the work on the robotics I did last year. Yeah. So as you can see here, of course, the the drivers behind the projects that you select, I, I guess, they do resemble things that you've done back when you were a government employee, but they're a smaller scale, of course. You used to play around with the Sydney Harbour Bridge and um, like roads and huge robots, and now you go to devices that are wearable, wearable, um, and uh, like at, at a small scale, and things that seniors can do inside the home. Like you mentioned, uh, the ability to control uh, various home appliances. And uh, also, I've seen a lot of um, influence from your son and your son's needs or special needs uh, when it comes to learning and interacting with technology. You, you mentioned he's not verbal, but his hands and are very good at making things and following instructions that are visual. Um, uh, so maybe just to wrap it all together, could you give us, based on your experience and the feedback that you have received from seniors, maybe just to separate seniors from younger people, what kind of projects do you think are more appropriate for that demographic, um, assuming that there is no background in programming or in technology, many people like that, um, still, the tools seem to be advanced enough and easy to get into that don't really require that. So that's a fear that somehow you can convince people that um, they can put it behind and still get into STEM without having to worry that you now the, the lack of experience in the technology is a, is a problem. So maybe can, can you give us a three, three or four top um, uh pieces of advice for people that would like to be involved in projects like that? Yeah, well, perhaps uh, with the uh, U3A, um, I found that um, working with Zoom is really difficult hmm. because there are a couple of steps that you have to go through to make it work. And one of them is that you put a, a firmware, you have to flash the memory on the small computer. Uh, the first step is pretty hard there to repair yeah, so the computer. Yep. Yeah, and I've, I've made YouTube videos on how to do that. But so far, not one single U3A uh, member <laughs> has been able to do it. I guess we don't have to worry too much about that with, uh, with immunizations going as they are. Probably by the end of this year, we'll be able to resume face-to-face. -face. So let's say that that's not a problem. Yeah, it, um, look, that is a, a, um, a big barrier. But um, with a face-to-face... I can have all this prepared, and even if they haven't um, prepared it themselves, hmm. uh, we can do it in five minutes at a face-to-face -face meeting. So the, yeah. there are so, some things that face-to-face -face meetings are essential. Yeah. So I guess that is a very good piece of advice. Um, don't even think about 
having at least the first few sessions that's right over over the internet uh first few sessions at least should be done face to face uh, after that you've got more flexibility the the other thing i use a lot is the experience that i had at uts as a lecturer now um there was a subject there called engineering discovery now um UTS uh, was quite good because they actually put their lecturers through a uh, graduate certificate of higher education mm, mm. so that they could understand the fundamentals of teaching and learning. And I was lucky enough. And I, I use a lot of the principles that I had at UTS. Now, for example, the first project that students do on U3A is a watch. And I explore the history of clocks and watches mm. as part of the context and it's quite interesting because I didn't know where the first watch came from. And as a STEM activity, if you ask all the kids to go and Google uh, the invention of the clock, they'll come back with the wrong answer. So it's a really interesting um, opportunity to critique the truthfulness about the, uh, the internet oh, and go. Google yeah. searching. So okay. it's not really just about technology, but... Uh, you, it's research and research research, research skills and uh, the ability to uh, know, go through a, a research process that eventually allows you to reach to a correct conclusion, right? And that is easier said than done. It, it does take a bit of time and patience. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's critical thinking and mm. it's also to encourage um, creativity so that yeah. they can actually question the results that they're getting. Now, at the moment, I'm preparing a module for U3A on computer music. And one of the things I'm going to ask them, where was the first uh, computer used in computer music? And not many of them will realise that it was the CSIRO in Sydney that actually <laughs> had the world's first computer playing computer music. Which is interesting. You know <laughs> yeah. And there is uh, even people in the CSIRO don't know that. But from the point of view of, um, I guess, a context of origin, uh, why why did they do it and nobody else? Yeah. So uh, I, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, yeah. So I always put in a social context and I look at the origins and the history behind some of the technologies that I'm working on. So maybe another piece of advice that you offer, just I'm, I'm rephrasing what you just said, is not to just focus on technology and that's it, but try to mix it, put the technology in context of the outside, let's call it the real world. Uh, put a little bit of um, uh, a story behind whatever it is that you're building, which is the excuse for learning something new, learning a new technology. But there's there's a lot around it. You want to make sure that the value is all part of the package. Yeah. And so not just it's, with one item. It's not just the making, but it's also um, the reflection on how the experience went and some of the context behind that. And I think the seniors, some of them might not be able to do the whole programming. And that's okay because I then cr critique learning processes and it's okay for them to uh, copy some of the code hmm. uh, from a library. And I uh, try to uh, go, get them to read what some of the blocks are trying to do. 
So yep. even if their even if their own software didn't work, at least they've got a bit of a inkling onto what's going on. So, Philip, I just have two last questions um, that I'd like to ask you here. So the first one is: Do you see again in the context of you know helping seniors in STEM and bridge that digital divide? Do you see yourself more of a teacher or a mentor? And if you could just say a couple of things about what that means for you, like what does it mean to be a teacher, if that's your answer, or what does it mean to be a mentor, if that's your answer? And the second question is, um, what happens if one of your seniors comes back and says to you, I'm totally stuck, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Tell me what okay. to do. <laughs> well, perhaps I can answer the second question first. Yep. And I'll and I'll say that that has already happened. I've had two uh, two students, and uh, the problem is the first one was very very enthusiastic, and raced ahead of um, what I was doing, and got quite frustrated, and had given up, and uh, I was surprised that she spent hours and hours on it, and I. I uh, I asked my uh, U3A students not to spend too much time. If they do spend time, limit it to about half an hour and tell me, let's have a conversation right. about what, what problems are you having. So your time books frustration to 30 minutes and then ask for help. Yeah. The, the yeah. lady that gave up was spending hours on it, uh, wasn't getting anywhere. And, and what I'm telling the students, there may be – little quirks or techniques that are not necessarily uh, logical but and they might actually be bugs in the system and there are workarounds. Now, um, I know what they are and it's hard to do uh, just on, a, on, on Zoom, but nice. um, I think we'll overcome that with our face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, but uh, even then, I would um, ask the students not to try and race ahead because some of these things, um, you know, uh, so kids right through to university students, it's been years and years learning programming. So they're not going to be able to um, overcome the everything that's required uh, in a few few hours. Yeah. So uh, I guess experience uh, is important, like in anything in life, but in particular in technology, every piece of technology has got its quirks. And uh, only experience reveals those quirks. It's like my analogy is the vending machine. You use the particular vending machine and you know that if you take a packet of chips from that slot, you usually get stuck. And then you know that if you hit the machine at the specific spot, it bumps it and gets the packet to drop. And only you know, you know that it's not in a specifications a data sheet or in a user manual. And I think that's why the student has to know when it's time to ask you. And you put a time limit, say 30 minutes. If you haven't figured it out, ask me. So what does it make you? like? So when they come back with a question 30 minutes later, do you give them an answer or do you prefer to guide them so that they can find their own answer. And I guess that's what makes you either a teacher or a mentor. Uh, well, I, I put in extra support. So while we have live Zoom sessions uh, and they're recorded and they can come back and watch it, uh, there's also, I make um, the YouTube videos, which are much shorter and uh, they're easier to follow. Mm, so there's mm. less interruptions that way. So I, I give them alternative resources. Uh, uh, 
one student had a lot of difficulty even just logging on to Zoom yeah. and, and gave up the course because of that. Now, um, I, I would like them to be able to come back and say, well, come to my place and I'll show you how to use Zoom rather than just quickly giving up. Yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't okay. think, I, I think there's a lot of additional support. So it's not a, just about following a presentation and that's it. So the process that we went through at university where you um, might have listened to the lecturer, did a lab session, and that was it. You had an exam. The processes of learning as a senior uh, are different. And I had to be a lot more flexible. So I think your first question was, what, what's my role? I think being a teacher is probably the last one. Yeah. I want to facilitate their learning and give them a challenge. And, and step by step, uh, together we can get there. Yeah. So I'm not expecting yeah. them to listen to a boring one-hour presentation. Thank you, Philip. Just to, just to clarify, in case people are wondering why I'm making a distinction between a teacher and a mentor, I'm just using those terms with the you know the, the in a simplistic way. For me, a teacher is what I've experienced as I was going through school, right? Which uh, was just stick to the curriculum. Uh, a mentor, on the other hand, is someone who gives more freedom to the students to explore and then helps them. In, as part of the exploration. And I guess when, when it comes to STEM, because of the project work, uh, that exp the ability and the freedom to explore uh, is a more important component of learning. And that's where you need kind of a mentor rather than a teacher who follows um, but the curriculum. The, the role of mentor, I use that um, with teachers. So, um, and also with uh, people that want to start up a new company offering mm. STEM mm. services to schools. Mm. So uh, in that role, uh, I can look at some of the broader aspects of how a mentor uh, or how they can get on and perhaps make suggestions and have a conversation uh, and give them some feedback. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it, a di completely different role. Well, thank you, Philip. That was amazing. Like, uh, the amount of productivity the, that you have presented and uh, the fact that you actually, you're not doing that, all that for yourself and for your own building curiosity, which obviously you have, but it's, it, it, you're creating things that you are sharing with others and helping others learn. I find that amazing. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Oh, thank you, Peter, for the opportunity of having a uh, discussion with you.